Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. What follows is an edited version of a fireside chat with members of the Integral Life Practice Community. I think we're here, right? Carolyn, Mary, Brad. Hi, Marty. Hi, Gary. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> Hi, Anne. Hi, Todd. Hi, Maria. Hi, Bernadette. John. Ooh, Stephanie. Admit all. There we go. Admit all. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. As it should be. Very yes. Good. Well, everybody, we're all unmuted and we're all here. Um, say hello or wave or something. Oh, hello. Hey, everybody. Mm-hmm. Hi. Good to see you. I'm going to mute everybody. And I assume people will be uh, trickling in here. And while that happens, I wanted to, um, well, first of all, thank Integral Life for inviting me to do this. And especially Namali Pereira, who is pulling together the integral practice community on integral life and is doing a terrific job. And uh, she has um, promised to host me on this show, at least to get me started, because I'm a little, I get a little fumbly with Zoom, but uh, she's off on a coaching assignment. So we're just going to muddle through the best we can here and keep it kind of simple. But before we get started too much, I wanted to share um, some of what they're doing at Integral Life. And I think you can see that share screen now of the Integral Live Events calendar. And of course, here we are for this fireside chat. And then Namali's also doing a Ken Wilber study group where they're working their way through uh, sex ecology and spirituality. And it's really wonderful, I have to say. I I sat in on the last one, and uh, Brad Reynolds did a video on Ken and Integral that was just very transmissive, (laughs) I have to say, of Integral Consciousness. And uh, Namali showed a... She showed a clip of Ken Wilber back in the Integral Institute days when we were doing the Integral Institute seminars, and he was doing pointing out instructions of um, you know finding the self and um and the the transpersonal self and it was just so luscious and beautiful and it just reminded me of the gratitude i have and so many of us have for ken then there's the integral writers lab uh which is um i see it is um contemplative and creative uh, practice group yep Uh, for writers, Integral Men's Group with Jason Lang, again, the study group, Integral Christianity with Paul Smith, Mystical Practice. There's a Spanish-speaking group coming up. There's a lot of integral uh, action in particularly Latin and South America. Uh, Bunan Brown is leading some Buddhist uh, practice, Integral Bodhisattva. There's the Integral Sisters Connection Cafe, This week, facilitated by Helen Rawlinson. It's for integrally informed women. I love that. Immersion into spaciousness uh, by Rabbi Ayin, uh, Jewish meditation. And um, so, yeah, I think they're really doing something, and it's um, I'm very happy about it and very happy to be a part of it. Um, So here we are with the fireside chat. (laughs) There's a Google Doc that we have put up for questions, and there are a cu- couple questions that have already been posted, but there's the doc. And you can go there and post any question you have, and again, I'll entertain anything, uh, theoretical, political, cultural, even personal, not too personal. So put it on the, the document there. Again, there are a couple. And, um, and I guess I would start by addressing the first question and it's by Karen Voorhees and she writes regarding the great stage theory debate Jeff I would love to explore further your formulation during a recent webinar where I said we use stages as portals to authentic communication with other people and cultures and yeah I I would um 
I think that's one of the great gifts of integral consciousness is that we are bored with our own native perspective on things. We got that. And we are drawn naturally to understand other people from their perspective as they describe themselves from their worldview. And what we just, what I just showed you on integral life is a perfect example of it. We have uh, three courses coming up, one on integral Buddhism, one on integral Christian mysticism, and the other on Jewish meditation. So three different traditions that can all be enlivened in a way from an integral perspective, because we can drink of their, you know, bounty, the, the, the great fountains of wisdom that, um, you know, religion has given us through all of history. And these three religions are really, you know, uh, the, the first of the axial religions, where there's posited a reality beyond our earthly existence. And there's three different portals into that reality. And they're all different. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough, as many of you are, to have drunk from, uh, in my case, two of them. Uh, I was raised as a Christian. And, um, of course, there's a Jewish tradition in Christianity. And, and then a Buddhist practitioner. And I can't imagine my spiritual life without both God However, that he, she, it are, I guess it'd have to be a he or she to be personal, but a personal divinity and also emptiness. You know, both of those things, um, I think, are, are portals into ways that human beings have tried to relate to the numinous and, um, and holding them together is, uh, you know, beginning of an integral spirituality. And, you know, I'm always a little torn on integral. I'm not torn. I'm, I'm for all of it. Uh, but, you know, I, there's a couple things going on here where we use integral to penetrate Judaism, the Christian love, Buddhist emptiness. And, and we take that one path. You know, we stick with Buddhism. We stick with Christianity. And that honors the old dictum, the old Zen saying, that if you chase many rabbits, you catch none. And so we do want to focus on one that really grabs us. And on the other hand, I like them all. And I also like nature worship. And I also like magic. And I also like great myths, like the myth of evolution itself, that something blew out of nothing 13.8 billion years ago and is complexified to us. And I look forward to the time when we will have an integral religion, an indigenous integral religion, that where emerges is at the center of it. And I will not get there with you. <laughs> we're not there yet, but we're working with, we're working on it. And um, yeah, so um, yeah, that's an example of how integral is a portal into other worldviews and other practices. And we have the whole smorgasbord of human wisdom and human practice that we can work with and play with. And that is, I mean, just such a gift of, of integral. And I'm going to share one more thing. Karen uh, talked about the great stage debate, which I think a lot of you know, which was kicked off by a tweet by Norma Bateson uh, about a year ago about how integral and stage theory in general is bullshit and colonial as hell and needs to go away, needs to be stopped. And there's a bunch of controversy about that. And in that spirit, I would like to um, share my new favorite thing. And I don't expect you to be able to really see it clearly, but it is a timeline that I ordered <laughs> off of Amazon. Uh, and it's a poster of all of uh, world history. Uh, it's starting from, uh, I don't know if you can see this, but starting from Egypt, this is what civilization, writing, basically, written history. And it does the whole timeline from Asia to North America and um, 
Europe and Africa and so forth. And it shows all of the civilizations that they come online and the Roman Empire and the Byzantines and the Holy Roman Empire. And then, of course, the modern world over here by the year 2000, where there's just this fluorescing of civilization. That is, you know, that is delivered to us by science, by godless science. And um, <laughs> and that, that, that there's, that's not in contention. You know, the idea that there have been stages, that there have been growth, that each one of those, that you know, and even the stages of culture and consciousness, um, that we move from a, an indigenous to tribal to a red warrior consciousness to a traditional consciousness, which these three religions really brought in and others, uh, and then to a modern consciousness about 300 years ago and postmodern consciousness now. Um, that's, I think, just pretty obvious and, um, and, 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 and non-controversial. What makes uh, Bateson's tweet, well, it's fine. It, it is what it is. And it, it's what integralists have to deal with uh, these days. It's a mean green tweet, okay? And what I mean by that is that every stage of development has both a gift and a downside. And green postmodernity uh, seeks to redress the, um, you know, the the, the mistakes and, and and evils of history, and one of them is hierarchy, and the idea of development at all. And so, what makes it um, so? That's a green critique of history and of integral, and that's. All good. That's the part of green we actually want to take forward into integral, where it's questioning, you know, what's our motivation? What have we not seen? What are we getting wrong? But the idea that it's all bullshit and must be eliminated is the mean part of green, because it's the part of green that says nothing but green can exist. And every stage has uh, some story about Everything that isn't their worldview is wrong. The, 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 what characterizes all first-tier worldviews, if you will, the first six, are that they think uh, they're the only right ones. And Integral has this new idea that it's all online. It's all available to us. So that's my response to that first question. And... Uh, can I ask something? Yes, uh, yes. I think that the problem uh, of the is not exactly the hierarchy, but because of in the society usually hierarchy means more power, more money, more you know. That's why I think this is a reluctance. So uh, that's why they're trying to say there is no difference between men and women and this and that because people who are higher on whatever hierarchy you pick are have more benefits uh, yes. and more advantages to society. And the problem yep. is not with the hierarchy per se, but the implication yes. in the world. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what I would like you to discuss in your group, just ideas like that. You know, how, how does this hit you? What comes up for you? What is... Um, uh, what are the problems that you're dealing with? Uh, what do you see politically, culturally that has you, uh, you know, worked up? So anyway, here we go. And all along, we will have the Google Doc open and you can add questions. And then we'll come back in 10 minutes, groups of three, and we'll sort it out a little bit. Okay, right? We here? Everybody back? Yeah, cool. Uh, I would, I think, respond to what you talked about, Tamar, before we went into the groups, which is the problem with hierarchy these days is not the hierarchy itself, but the fact that the hierarchy uh, confers different uh, material, you know, and consciousness benefits on people at the higher stages. And that's true. And that's one of the sort of horrors of, of, of human history that Green is very sensitive to. 
Green does not like that. This is good green. We talked about mean green. This is good green. The idea that um, that anybody is suffering and that I have advantages and privileges that other people don't have are is painful. And that's good. That's what we want. That's one of the things we want to take into integral. And I think it's probably a good segue into addressing one of the other questions that came up in the Google Docs. Uh, and that is from Quigley. And she says, Jeff, I remember you, you had an episode talking about the role of the arts in our evolution of consciousness and culture. I'm wondering if you've listened to Christopher Tin's The Lost Birds, which is an elegy to birds that have gone extinct. All the songs are on YouTube and so forth. And you can see in the Google Doc, there's a link to it. And I saw that this morning and I did link to it. And it is a beautiful example of what I'm talking about in a way. And this is something that I'm sort of um, just sort of getting myself. And I've always resisted this, this idea. But it's the idea that to move into integral, one what one of the things that green wants is for us to atone uh for history to be set right for there to be reparations for there to be affirmative action in, in race but also in terms of the environment um and uh sort of the state of the materialistic wasteland <laughs> of modern life if you will i mean i always think that if we look at the last three stages of development traditionalism modernism and postmodernism there's three emotional complexions to each uh traditional is fearful they're fearful of God, they're fearful of nature, they're fearful of death, old age, sickness, and death, not to mention the hell realms that follow. Uh, modernity is anxious because we've gotten rid of all that, but we haven't really, you know, replaced it with anything. And I will put the link in the chat. Yes, I will. Uh, but we haven't replaced with anything. So, you know, it ends up that we're just sort of protoplasm here on a rock hurtling through space. And what's it all mean? You know, that's the beginning of the meaning crisis. And in postmodernity, the emotional complexion of postmodernity is depressed. You know, because we see that all, everything that we thought about history and science leading us to the promised land or our religion or our people it's all, you know, there's nothing to believe in. It's the whole project of, or the, at least the intellectual project of postmodernity is to critique uh, all that came before. And so, uh, you know, you end up in a, a world of, of everything's gone wrong. There's nothing to believe in. This is the sort of the mean part of green, in addition to the part that wants to set it all right, which is good green. So with that said, that gets me to this um, um, this extinction elegy on the lost birds by Christopher Tin that was sent to me. And I'll play just a bit of it for you. It's a um, choral work and it's beautiful. Oh my God. I mean, I didn't listen to all of it by any means, but I rarely like a piece of music this much when I first hear it. And part of it is I'm an old choral hound. You know, I used to sing in choirs and I like singing in choirs. So I love choral music and um, and it's just lovely. So I'm going to uh, play a piece of it that actually what he does is he uses four female poets from the 19th century and he sets their words to music. One of them is um, Emily Dickinson. Yeah, this is uh, uh, from one of her poems. They're, they're going to sing this. It's going to be hard to understand because it's choral music and it's hard to understand sometimes. But here's the, here's the verse that I'm about to play. And Emily Dickinson writes, An ear can break a human heart. An ear. She's talking about the birds singing, first of all. That's the most of the poem. And they sing all of this. And then she ends with this line. An ear can break a human heart as quickly as a spear. We wish the ear had not a heart 
so dangerously near. So it's just heartbreaking. It really is. So here we go. And think about the birds. Here we go. So. <laughs> get the idea and it's a whole thing and it's on youtube and i will share the link Let me... all right so this is reading from the program for this uh, the lost birds and extinction elegy he writes the sky was once full of birds magnificent flocks so enormous that they would darken the skies for days as they flew overhead the most awe-inspiring of these flocks belonged to a bird called the passenger pigeon at their height, they were the most numerous bird species in North America, with a population estimated at 5 billion. But over the course of a few decades, we eradicated them for food, using nothing but the crudest 19th century hunting technology. With callous indifference, we simply shot them out of the sky one by one until their songs were never heard again. The lost birds is a memorial for their loss and the loss of the other species due to human activity. It's a celebration of their beauty as symbols of hope, peace, and renewal. And, and then the last paragraph of what he writes, he, he talks about a world that we have transformed from a pastoral society to an industrial one one in which humans, for the first time, began disastrously reshaping the environment. And the poems which I selected depict an increasingly fraught world, first without birds and ultimately without humans. All right. So, um, what I, I would say that that is a good example of green art. And as far as I can tell, I mean, at least... For me, I'm attracted. The, the art that I'm most attracted to is green art. And I think of uh, postmodern art, if you will. Postmodern art, which again, criticizes the, the world that it has been delivered into. Uh, my favorite gallery is the Saatchi Gallery in London. I don't know if any of you have gone to, but it's um, the gallery that is the, the, one of the most prominent artists is Damien Hirst, who did the, uh, the series of are, uh, of sculptures of actual animals who have been bisected with a saw and put in a vat of formaldehyde. And it's so hideous and yet so moving about humans' treatment of animals and sort of this objectification and material um, wasteland of materialism that it, you know, it does what art does, which it you know, blasts us out of our complacency. There's a wonderful saying that uh, the artist is the civil servant of the unknown. And I love that. So it's bringing something forth. So this is an example of good green art, if you will. But the I, I, I want to differentiate it from what I think in integral art would be. And I'm not sure there's much of it, uh, and I'd be open to anybody's idea of what it might be, because I'm kind of confused here myself. Uh, but what I would say is that the history of humanity has not been kind to nature. Half of the natural world has been killed in the name of human civilization, roughly, maybe more. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Uh, and, of course, the passenger pigeon is a perfect example of, it's like you said, the 19th centuries and the 1800s, when we were in this one of these sour spots in history, 
where we have a traditional consciousness. A traditional consciousness lives off the land, and as does human history all prior to that. There's not really, there's a reverence for the land and that you feel connected to it, but you exploit it to your abilities. That's why indigenous people weren't necessarily, did not necessarily have a green postmodern attitude towards the environment. It's just that they're, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of uh, a power to change it. Uh, when they did, by burning forests, by running herds of buffaloes off of cliffs in order to have a you know, a couple to eat. They did it. And what's also true is that we are learning and growing. And we the what happened to the passenger pigeon and also to the buffalo would never happen now. Again, this sour spot in history where we have traditional consciousness, exploitation, and modern weaponry. So we have these guns. I mean, they I mean these stories of the settlers going out into the plains on trains that were actually set up as little stadium where you would sit facing out and you'd shoot buffalo just to watch them die. I don't know. It's a target practice. I mean, it's hideous to think of that. And so that's the that's the, the story of uh, a green postmodern that sort of fall from Eden. Uh, uh, all of first tier memes have some some sense of how humanity has driven it into the ditch, and we've fallen from the uh, the uh, paradise, basically. What integral brings is the story of a rise from Eden, and it's been. <laughs> ugly and hideous in many ways. It's also been good, true, and beautiful. In fact, I was just listening. I, I don't know, you may have seen it. It was on 60 Minutes, uh, uh, a segment with Anderson Cooper on dogs. And they were talking about how the friendliest wolves were the ones who became dogs. And friendliness is actually so evolutionarily potent. And that there were five human species back in prehistory. And humanity is the one who won out. So Neanderthals or the descendants of the Indians or whatever, there's all these other ones. But the characteristic they think, the theory is, is that we won out because we were so friendly. And I love that. And I want to tell that part of the story here. Uh, and so there's an up from Eden story that what happened to the passenger pigeon would never happen now. He talks about in the in the program notes how we have to reverse our course. We are reversing our course. We have reversed our course. We have 15 million bird watchers in 2020. I just looked it up on Google. We and that's up from 13 million the year before. I mean, it's there's a uh, a a fluorescing of consciousness. This is you know every every culture, every stage of consciousness wants to make their own nest, you know, livable, optimized. And the story of humanity is the story of us getting ever and ever bigger views of what we're able to take into account into that equation. And now when we get to post-modernity, we have the whole planet. And that's why, you know, postmodernists. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Redneck, Pennsylvania, I would say, I'm a citizen of the world. And people would say, no, you're an American. And I think, what? Why can you? What's the problem with being a citizen of the world? Uh, that's just a that's a good green impulse. And so we see that we got this whole nest, this whole nest of the planet, and uh, and you know it's in bad shape. And so that I, I it, when that story is told with the fall from Eden story then that to me will be an integral art. And I don't know if that's happening or happened, but um, he, he talks in his program notes about offering hope. And I I hate hope. I don't want to say I hate, I hate hope. I'm, I'm pro-hope. But hope, it's, it's a, one of the what Buddhist teachings that has stuck with me for so long is that hope always comes with fear. And it's fear that I'm sort of objecting to, the fear motivation. That I want a creativity motivation to come online. Because otherwise, we're going to have too many depressed teenagers. You know, the, the part of it is not, social media is a part of it. But part of it is just the consciousness of post-modernity. It's like there's nothing to believe in. 
And so hope is a thin rule to be. I hope this happens. I'm afraid it won't. I hope that happens. I'm afraid it won't. So hope and fear always tied together. One of the great Buddhist teachings. Uh, and I, I would argue for faith. I'm off. I'm all in on faith. So you know, here we are. We rose out of the swamps. We came down from the trees, and we have been slugging and loving and friending and fighting and failing our way forward ever since. And now we're turning the corner and, you know, there's a reforestation in the first world. The first world, I mean, there's still, I mean, if you want to criticize the first world from a, a perspective of uh, environment and, and sort of the natural world, uh, I'm all in on the extinct birds. Again, this is a beautiful work of art. But the problem now is, uh, and it's part of the bird problem, is you know, when I driving through Iowa and just seeing the miles and miles of in, it's industrial food supply, industrial agriculture, pesticides, you know, that's the current problem, not to mention the thing that I can almost not bear to think about, which is factory farming of animals, you know, meat factories, where the, you know, the, 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 the sentience of the animals is not being recognized. That's the current heartbreak to me. Um, but, you know, are humans worth it? You know, he talks about, I, I saw a YouTube of, of this composer and he said, you know, he thinks nature would be fine without us. Yes, it would, but we are the point of the evolutionary spear. And I think emergence itself, this is part of the religious, this is why I say I, I never talked myself into integral. I, I, I'm i a religious integralist, you know, as I see and feel this updraft of emergence in my life, see it in the world and all that good stuff. So that's interesting. We're not the most important species. And when we talk about development, this is one of the, this is where Norma Bateson gets it right. Nothing, everything is precious. Every stage of development is precious. An eight, a twelve-year-old, a twelve-year-old is no more precious than an eight-year-old. Modernity is no more precious than indigenous. Uh, everything is precious. Uh, and with that said, humanity is the point of emergence, point of the spear of emergence, and uh, that's a that's a certain value in that that I think is worth noting. Oh, let me just go to the last one. There's just a quick little. Uh, palate cleanser here. Have you seen any episodes of the TV show Ghosts, where the ghosts from different times and worldviews are growing up together? Yes, I have. I've watched many episodes of it. And there's a British version and there's American version, and it's this young couple who rent a or buy, uh, inherit actually an old castley bed and breakfast that's haunted by people from every stage, <laughs> including you know cave the caveman guy. And it's it is it's great. It's hysterical and uh, very sort of helpful in seeing these stages of development. I really like it. We use our different. Oh, would an integral central world government ever ever be possible? What would be holding such an entity from existing? Is it possible to force feed or brainwash the masses with integral and have it be psychoactive, or is this a bad idea? An integral dictatorship. LOL. <laughs> That's such a good question. And um, and one that I have had to reconcile myself to the answer, which is, I don't know about integral world government anywhere soon. Well, let me actually just say this about that. Um, there's a de facto world government that is emerging with, um, you know, various organizations like the World Health Organization and various uh, NGOs, not to mention NATO and, you know, the various, the UN. Uh, this is the first stabs at integral world government. It's not going to take over traditional. This is one of the sort of things about uh, that integral shows us that I don't know how optimistic it makes me, but as Ken Wilber would point out, two-thirds of the population of the world is that traditional or earlier. And no, you can't make them integral. You can't make people, you can't, 
make people grow. You can't, you know, force feed uh, the, the next stage of development on people. And, and this is where, you know, it's our job as integralists to see and love people where they are. It, it reminds me of one of the great teachings of my meditation teacher, uh, Shinzen Young, who said the best way to get from point A to point B is to be fully at point A. And I love that. Um, what it means is that we just have to, uh, and this is the portal where we see people, the traditional people, Trumpers, you know, we see Russians, we see Ukrainians, we see it all. And there's something that I have to think that is liberating about that just in the noetic sphere, that somebody who actually is the universal donor, who can be friends with everybody, who can explain their worldview as well as they can, it comes in handy. And that's, you know, where we're at as integralists. In some ways, it's a parental role. Uh, it's a, it, almost a grand parental role in that we see everybody fighting and we love them all and there's no getting around it. They're all growing up and so are we. Uh, and we're integral maybe on a good day and we're integral maybe in the intellectual line. I mean, don't ask me about my emotional st stage of development. You know, don't, even my culinary, I still go, I, I want comfort food, you know. Uh, Gren, Ken used to talk about that there's as many lines of development as things that you can say about human beings. So there's the parenting line, there's the snowboarding line, there's the musical line, there's the, you know, interpersonal line. And we're all at different places. And this is where, you know, so many people who have this idea of integral as being, you know, oppressive or some sort of lockstep move from this stage to that need to loosen up a little bit and actually get with what the theory really is, which is a series of probability clouds. But still, you can see the movement itself. You know, you go from eight to 12 to 24 to so forth. And actually, I do want to share a picture. And this is an image I saw the other day that I thought really helps us to understand some of even this great stage debate. Are you seeing it? It's yeah. a picture of a spiked nautilus. So the spiral and the golden ratio, which creates a spiral, is, is just one of these beautiful mathematical numbers that's found in nature. And one stage, you know, circles, is, is history cyclical? Yes. Is it linear? Yes. Cic cyclical and linear add up to a spiral. And so... What I love about this spiked nautilus is that not only is there a spiral that's obvious, but you can see that there's spikes coming out at every level. And were there people and um, and various cultures that spiked ahead of the rest? Yes. You know, they were teaching math and, and playing with democracy in ancient Greece. They were also racist warmongers, you know. Uh, but there was a spike into that. Uh, in the caves of Tibet, uh, individual people, you know, uh, I think of Walt Whitman, who wrote the most glorious integral poetry in the middle of the Civil War when he was working at a soldier's hospital. Unbelievable. Uh, and yet there's centers of gravity where we just slog our way forward, and we can note that too. So it's both. It's our differences that make this work, help others understand this, so we can appreciate the differences and uncover the gifts in that. Well, you know, again, I don't know if you can help people understand it in the way that you want them to, but um, you can definitely appreciate the differences, uncover the gift in them, and again, be fully at point A with this person, with this culture, with whatever it is, and point B will happen. And that's, I think, so great. Um, and, um, you know, in the world to come, uh, you, if we make it, 
I do think that there'll be a planetary government, you know, if the trend continues. I mean, if you look at the history of tribes to clans, to nations, to, you know, this quasi world governments, at least in the Western world, um, that will continue. And it's one of the things that I think we can factor in. It's, it's what integralists can bring to any debate, if you will. The debate on, for instance, Russia and Ukraine, you know, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. One of the things that we want to make sure that we're considering as we think about this is development itself. And I was doing a thought experiment with a friend the other day, and I think I offended her. But, you know, I was making the case, the Trump case, actually. And first of all, let me just say that I think Biden's doing a, a, a Good job with um, Russia, Ukraine. I think the West has been great in terms of their response. I think Russia's the bad guys. Ukraine is the good guys. We have traditional, a traditional authoritarian. So not only traditional, but red authoritarian uh, attacking a traditional slash modern country. So, you know, that's all very clear to me. And yet, uh, I want to, as an integralist, consider these D different points of view. So uh, she was talking about Jeffrey Sachs and she I was disappointed she wasn't Jeffrey Sachs, who uh, talks about uh, on democracy now how it's America's fault because we were pinning uh, Putin in and uh, NATO was coming too close. And, you know, so fair enough. I take that into account. Uh, we I also take into account the the, I don't know if Trump thinks it out in this way, because who knows what he thinks in a way. But the idea that if Ukraine had surrendered, if you will, or if Putin had, as everybody expected, taken Kiev in three or four days, then we would have this situation where, you know, Ukraine would be united. U Ukraine has a deep and abiding hatred for Russia from way back. Although it's been part of Russia for centuries, you know, so there's all that going on. So he would have, well, could you imagine being, imagine being Putin's man in Kiev, you know, so he, he would have banged the hornet's nest. He would have had Ukraine to deal with integrating it into Russia. And that would have sapped his energy that would have you know, perhaps toppled him. And, you know, the movement to modernity where, Russia eventually becomes something along the lines of France, you know, uh, still a lot of aristocracy in the back in the background in history, but basically a modern country uh, might have happened on its own. And I think that's a reasonable story. I mean, I can connect those dots, no problem. And, and as an integralist, I do want to connect those dots so that I can see that point of view as well. I mean, it makes me less sure about myself. But I still have to vote, and I will, and I'll stay, make binary decisions when I have to. But uh, I also want to factor in these other options and these other stories. So I don't know. Okay. Why aren't we giving them F-16s? <laughs> um, well, you know, I don't know. I'm so glad I don't have to make these decisions. I, I, that's all I can say. What I will say is that by choosing resistance, you're choosing the, the horrors of this war. It may be unavoidable. I think it is. I think they're handling it reasonably well. But boy, I'd like to see it end. You know, where I, I used to be so sure of everything, and now I'm not. And uh, I don't know, it doesn't feel as good, but I think it's probably some progress. Yeah. How about that? This is this last one. Putin has nukes. Don't quarter the bear in his cave. I think it's reasonable. One of the factors that you have to take into account is, you know, Putin himself. So Putin's, an, you know, he's pushing 70. I don't know whether he's bored. I don't know whether he, you know, he's, he was isolated during COVID. I don't know whether he got religion. I guess he did. That's, you know, the more devout, the more dangerous. That's that's a problem. And, you know, apocalypse is just sort of built into the human psyche. And for somebody at red, you know, they just assume this is Trump. 
they assume that what's good for me is good for everybody and good for America, at least, you know, good for the world, good for Russia. And so, um, and if it ends in an apocalypse, I mean, there's no way right now that Putin can, quote, surrender. I don't know how either of them win this war in the sense of, you know, until they sort of exhaust each other enough. I'm hoping that they exhaust each other enough that they can uh, come to the, the bargaining table in some good faith and, and you know, deal with it. But right now, I, I you know, I, I mean, I don't know space. And, and, you know, Putin knows he can't win and wants to survive. Uh, yeah, but if he sees that he's not going to, uh, then, you know, that's, is Putin really going to allow himself to be hauled off to the Hague? You know, the reparations of uh, Russia to Ukraine? I don't know. I, I think, again, the most, the, the more devout, the more dangerous in the sense that you worry about an enemy who wants to go out in a blaze of glory. That's traditional and earlier mentality. You know, I'll die for this. You know, there's things worse than death. Uh, a modernist, you know, th they want to sort it out. And the difference generally is you're more afraid of the enemy who lives in a cave than the one who lives in a palace. Because the palace, you know, they, they got something to lose. It's not a question of devoutness, but rather fundamentalism. Fair enough. I think that is, um, people can be devout as an advanced integral level. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. That's a very good distinction. Um, consider how World War I started. Yes, don't assume rational actors. Absolutely. Russia has a history of winning through massive sacrifice of Russian people. Yeah, I, I saw an analysis of Russia made a very good case, and I think this is probably true of, of a traditional stage of consciousness, is that they keep fighting until dot, 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 they can't. You know, so there, there's a long way to go here with, um, with how far Russia is willing to go. And by the way, um, you know, I just think it's an amazing thing what an expert I am on the Russia-Ukraine war. <laughs> and I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but if I think of the presidents who had to make war and peace decisions through, you know, even recent history, um, they would sit in a room with somebody who would be an expert from here and an expert from there and the defense guys and the, you know, culture people and all their advisors, and there'd be, you know, they maybe call their friends. Bill Clinton would call people in the middle of the night, try to get advice. I got all of that. We all do. We all do. I mean, I sit in front of YouTube and watch man in the street interviews from Moscow. I listen to their um, media people, and they're nuts. And I listen to this expert and that expert from the right and from the left and from the military and the soldiers, and the people who have fled Russia. I mean, the expert, what's available to us, and that's why, from an integral perspective, we really do want to have the consciousness that includes perspectives. You know, includes all perspectives as best we can. It's a practice. It's not something we get, you know, successful at, but it's a practice. The thing you do to be faithful, not successful. And so we, you know, hold that. And there, it, I have to assume that in this larger space that is identified not with perspectives, but with in the space within which perspectives arise, is wiser and more loving, because that's just the trajectory of history. When I have to make a binary decision, F-16s or not F-16s, I mean, there's no compromise there, or, or at least not a clear one, uh, I'll make a wiser decision. When I'm voting for the next president or when I'm, you know, I'll make the binary decisions that I have to, but I don't need to believe them in the way that I used to. I don't need to believe I'm right in the way that I used to. There's a certain uh, realization at Green that knowledge in the way that we thought it was in terms of hard facts and so forth are slippery. And it's not just what we're seeing, but we, the seer, are 
actually part of it. And the karmas of history are a part, part of it. And, you know, what Mean Green will often conclude from that is there's there's no knowing. You know, and they're just become anti-intellectual and anti-expert. Again, it's just part of this depressing thing that we don't know anything. At Integral, I think there's a good part of that that we want to take forward in that we don't know things the way we thought we did. Uh, we want to take connect these dots. We want to connect those dots. We want to see how people are connecting their dots. And there's a certain, um, you know, there's not a, it's not as comfortable as it used to be, but I do think it's wiser and more loving. And I, I think I will uh, stick with that. You know, we're again, there's all, I think there's always a sour spot in history. It's like that timeline. It's like so much is happening now that we have a world with modern technology, modern weaponry, and still a lot of traditional uh, ethnocentric, aggressive parts. And, uh, you know, that's a bad combination. All right. <laughs> well, that's it for today, folks. I think we're at time. Yes. So thank you. What fun. It's nice to hang out with you. And um, well, thank you again to Integral Life. Thank you, Namali, for putting this together. And I encourage you all to join Integral Life so that you can be part of the Integral Practice community. It's worth it's worth it. Hmm. And um, yeah. So I think with that said, let's unmute and everybody say uh, a goodbye and wish each other well. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. 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 Bye.